So, Brett, how can you mend a broken heart? I don't think you can. I think only time can mend a broken heart. There's nothing you can do about it. Just accept it, I guess. Killing people. Killing people usually helps, too, though. (laughs) And hiding their bodies and... I mean, that is one way to mend a broken heart. I I mean, tentacles are definitely one way to mend a broken heart. Um, Creating shrines is another way. Uh, There is, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, I'm searching the internet rapidly, quickly to make sure I get it right. Have you ever uh, heard of the... Jason Voorhees, his his heart broke when his mom died. And now he's created a a shrine for her. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that about him. I just knew oh, that yeah. he has a really tough time with lakes. Like lakes Correct. are <laughs> his natural enemy. Um, but have you heard of the Japanese art of kintsugi? Nope. It's where they take broken pottery and they use gold to repair it. So you get to see all the fracture lines of how it broke. But then it has a second life as an even more beautiful object. So I think it's a very lovely metaphor for hearts, which do get broken periodically. I know mine has been uh, multiple times, but you rebuild it. You glue it together with gold and you have a more beautiful heart as a result. Yeah, but do the Japanese break the pots on purpose and then glue them back together just to make a point? Or do they? is it only four pots that have been broken on accident? You know, that I don't know, but I'm sure there is a cottage industry and people who <laughs> do intentionally break pots and then put them together again. But let's hope that people don't do that with hearts. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Let's do it. This is Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm Shira, and you know, I like a good romantic comedy here and there. I am Brett, and I always love a good horror movie every time. Each week here at Necromancer, Brett picks a horror movie, I pick a rom-com, and then we like to flip-flop those movies around and turn the horror into a rom-com and the rom-com into a horror movie. This week, as you may have guessed, we are talking about heartbreak, getting dumped, losing the one you love. And it's not exclusive to romantic relationships. There are lots of ways that you can experience heartbreak. Uh, I think both movies in this case highlight how parent-child relationships can have a lot of heartbreak in them too, uh, which I think would be an interesting through line. Other than that, these movies have virtually nothing in common except the theme of uh, separation and breaking up. Yeah, sometimes we'll do 
uh, two movies that are very different, but it's like, oh, they have this one really cool, unique thing in common. Archie! And yeah. <laughs> and then this one was like, nope, nowhere. Nowhere near each other. Complete magnetic poles. But once again, I feel like our podcast is on the frontiers of, again, being the only podcast to ever talk about Hannah and her sisters and Thanksgiving in the same episode. You're welcome. And now we are the only podcast to talk about Possession, a 1981 psychological horror movie, and The Broken Hearts Gallery, a rom-com from 2020 i mean we're just we're bringing families together or separating them in this case uh and uh breaking new ground nobody is talking about these things together and you're welcome yeah uh i don't know i i liked (laughs) did you get my text from before no, I uh, I was too busy doing stuff. And, you know, like I've mentioned, Doug and I have been heavily into Survivor. I'm really right. surprised I have not worked it into a remix theme yet. But I mean, you know, just give me time. So yeah, between between that and making sure I'd watch both movies, I, you know, totally blanked out. But what what were you going to say? Oh, I just sent you a little message that said, well, one of these movies was tough to sit through. Oh, um, and I'm guessing it was the same one for me, which was definitely Possession. <laughs> uh, no, actually. <laughs> or I like no. I like oh, you like both movies. Oh, yay. It was a trick. You know, yeah, last episode was a difficult one for Brett because we went through Sweet Home Alabama, and I remember writing about it online later to other romance movie fans because I'm geeky like that. (laughs) Uh, And it's true, Sweet Home Alabama is the most well-known rom-com for Reese Witherspoon, but I think that the internet agrees with you, Brett, in that it's really not her best outing compared to say legally blonde. Yeah. I, I, it just, I watched so many movies after we watched um, sweet home Alabama that were so like welcoming of the hijinks that like to see, to see sweet home Alabama, it was like watching a, a genre, a movie genre, try to push away what made it so fun. Right. And, you know, I think that 20 years later or 18 years later in the case of Broken Hearts uh, Gallery that, I don't know, I think you get a little something different there where they're embracing all of the tropes, but in a new way that feels fun. Yeah, I yeah, the way I'm glad that you told me ahead of time that this movie like lampshaded a couple of tropes because there were a few moments in the movie where I was thinking, why would a perfectly fine movie go and do this? And then I knew, I knew that there was a payoff coming or that they were going to kind of like tweak it a little bit. Um, So yeah, that was good to know because then I didn't have to like sit in actual confusion of like, but they were doing a good job so far. 
Right. And I, I do think that both movies uh, go in places that you don't expect. Well, we'll if we're going to draw <laughs> comparisons, we'll draw comparisons there. Um, but before we get into the movies, let's just talk a little bit about heartbreak or breaking up as a theme. As a writer, as a director, do you get a lot out of that? Or is this something like unrequited love where you just don't feel any creative urge from that as a theme? Uh, as a creator, no, I don't feel, uh, I, heartbreak has, has never hit me in that sense. I don't know. I've just never had it in, in the way that most movies make a big deal about it. Um, I mean, it sucks to go through and I've gone through it, but it's, it's never like scarred me in any way that I've needed to release to try to heal that wound through art. Really? You're not creatively motivated by heartbreak? Because I totally am. I think that when I'm feeling the worst is when I tend to do the best work. No. I I get what you mean, but I don't I don't have that. No. I just don't. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know. I, I find it to be rich, but I rather than I, I do think that there are a lot of great rom-coms that are sort of built off the steam that a woman has in the wake of a breakup. Like I just mentioned Legally Blonde and her post breakup sequence is one of the most satisfying uh, character developments for a woman who's been dumped and dumped publicly and badly. Uh, so I, I think that that tends to be something in, in romantic comedies that we enjoy again and again. It's, it's definitely a major part of one of my favorite movies of all time, which of, as of this moment is still not on any streaming devices. Like I, I want to create a campaign, like there should be, uh, a poll or a government campaign against this, but French kiss with Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein, uh, she gets dumped by, I think, Timothy Hunton, and it motivates her to get on a plane, even though she's afraid of flying, and go to Paris and get him back. And then, of course, you know, romantic comedy ensues, but there's so much fire out of a woman scorned that it just ends up being really rich uh, for romantic comedies. But I think that horror has some great women scorned too. I mean, certainly, certainly Possession is more of a man scorned movie. I, I think the scorning pretty much falls heavily onto uh, Sam Neill. Uh, but it, it it is something that I feel can be really rich to motivate people to start taking risks. Like you, you love when the risk assessor becomes the risk taker. And I feel like a breakup is such an easy swish, nothing but net when it comes to making that transition. I don't know if it's an easy swish. <laughs> I think there's a lot of movies that use it and use it very lazily, but I yeah. agree with you that the reason why people keep doing it the reason why it's kind of like a slam going for a slam dunk or something i don't know we're, we're using basketball but metaphors but i don't like basketball but it's like i love basketball though, oh wait we can use hockey metaphors okay yeah so you got it's the biscuit you're trying to put it in the basket <laughs> um 
But no, like it, they, they, it is a slam. Like you know, when you sometimes when you see a slam dunk, it looks ugly and weird, or it like takes a weird bounce. But sometimes you see a slam dunk, and you're like, oh man, that looked super satisfying to do. And like, I think this movie does do a slam dunk in terms of um, uh, oh, the which rom-com, movie? The rom com, the the broken. Uh-huh. I always want to call it the broken heart gallery or the heart. I want to call it the heartbreak gallery. That's how mm-hmm. I keep you Googling it. But like, yeah, they, they do a very good job of making the beats feel satisfying. Um, but yeah, it's still. Yeah. I think there's the just day, something yeah. really satisfying about heartbreak on screen. I think maybe more, maybe more in a comedy than a horror. Uh, but like, I'm thinking for instance, like, You've seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall, right? Yeah. Like when he's on the, Jason uh, Siegel is on the piano saying, I need a psychiatrist. I need a psychiatrist. It's just, it's really funny to watch somebody be in pain that way. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Which that's actually one of the things that, again, made me want to do this podcast because, yeah, on the surface, it seems like rom-coms and horror are really different, but we are getting entertained by people's pain either way, whether that's the emotional pain and the awkwardness of being in love or the physical and psychological and philosophical pain (laughs) of divorce. (laughs) I'm sure that we'll mention Hellraiser many more times in our discussions as we talk about pain and pleasure and and taboo love and heartbreak <laughs> and killing people to keep your lovers alive. <laughs> oh my God. Possession slithered so that Hellraiser could run. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. Which movie would you like to do first? I can talk about either one first. I just watched both of them and I watched. Oh no shit. So first. did I. Yeah. Uh, like and I, I'm so just did I. Few, I'm a few hours off of both of them. Yeah, so I I definitely well I'd seen the Broken Hearts Gallery before, right. and that's what motivated me motivated me to choose this theme. Um, and I'd also seen Possession a couple years ago, but I knew that Possession was gonna be emotionally draining. Uh, so I deliberately chose to watch it first because I I figured I would need a palate cleanser. <laughs> Yeah, I all I knew from Possession was what you had mentioned about it when I picked it, which was oh my God. pretty much just a big oof. <laughs> well, I couldn't say anything. Right, right. If there's one thing that you've probably learned about me from this podcast audience, it's that I don't give a shit about spoilers. Uh, and it, it, for the most part, I don't really care about saying them. Um, and I know... I know people who are very annoyed by that. Like there's a not small, there's a not small minority that is very against She-Ra spoilers. Um, But I have my loyalist and it was so fucking hard for me to not spoil you on this movie because I knew that I, I shouldn't like, I, I knew that the moral thing to do was not to tell you anything about it, but I wanted to tell you everything So that was very frustrating for me. And you should be (laughs) thankful that I held myself back. Yeah, I definitely (laughs) am. Uh, And uh, luckily, everything that I read about it online when I was looking for, because you picked the the theme, you picked the movie, 
and so I was I was like, what should I do? Should I do a one of the um one of the hidden gems? Should I do one of the heavy hitters? Well, the and brood put, was in there for a bit too as an yeah. option. But this movie, I've always heard about it. Uh, you know, it's a horror fan, never seen it, thought it was a classic, knew it was kind of a cult classic. So, yeah, I went into it knowing nothing about it other than it was about a divorce and that there may or may not be some kind of H.P. Lovecraft monster thing going on. Ah, so you already knew about that. It's so much better to go into the movie not knowing about but the like, tentacle monster. They, You know what I mean? Like they do kind of say, I don't know the, the way that the, the, the places I saw recapped it and mentioned it. It was kind of, I, I appreciate it. Oh, they it. tried to give it away. No, they just, it, I don't know. The movie even says at the beginning though, it says creature effects by so-and-so. So I was like, Oh, like that's pretty. That's such a film nerd spoiler. Like anybody else would, you know, glaze by that. But being a film guy, you're like, okay, yeah. creature effects means there's going to be creatures. Yeah. And I, yeah, I was fixing Johnny's blanket so he could watch the movie next to me. And then he... Johnny the cat. Johnny the cat. And then as I was fixing the blanket is when I saw it. So I did a legitimate double take of like, wait, what? <laughs> creature effects? Um but also knowing it kind of fit in that HP HP Lovecraftian sense, like right, I'm glad that I had that lens to watch it with right away because right away from the very beginning it was like, oh okay, we're we're going way deep into the abyss because we're already starting at the edge, falling in. Yeah, this movie, my experience with this movie is uh, I recorded it on my DVR. It's, I guess, a fairly hard movie to find. you you got to yeah. get that Criterion copy, folks. Uh, but, of course, it was on Turner Classic Movie on one of those late night uh, things. And half of the movie was watching me because I think I fell asleep. Uh, but for the parts that I was awake for... Most of my thoughts were, what the hell? Jesus Christ, what is happening? This is crazy. Oh, my God. Uh, and I, yeah, so I, I came away from it feeling like there were parts of it that were uh, boring to sit through and other parts that were just, you know, like you said, extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but Sam Neill as a man scorned, like, let's give him a hand because he really did the most in this movie. But even more than him, Isabel Angiani really just like went over the edge. Um, I think she's one of the most beautiful women in the entire world. And she no sold it. I really had no idea who she was before this, but I agree. Like from she's a famous French actress. From the first shot of the movie to the last, anytime she was on screen, I was like, "Holy cow, she's incredible!" Yeah, I I agree. She's like a Carnival of Souls actress turned up to eleven. Yes, with just the way that the camera loves her face. I, that is a very good comparison. 
All right, well, let's go ahead and get into possession. Now, possession is, again, I, I kind of hate the expression show, don't tell, but this is very much a show movie. There is no telling in this movie. Don't even expect it. And I also think that I should be fair in saying that this movie should come with a huge trigger warning. Uh, there is domestic abuse. There's child neglect. There's child death. Uh, it is not a comfortable movie. And I think that there are some horror movies. Like I think that a Friday the 13th movie might be less triggering than the kind of things you see in possession. So fair warning to you all. This movie is an uber psychological thriller. I had an absolute blast with the entire movie because I was watching it from very distinctly like a filmmaker's point of view. So the entire movie, I was going like, man, you're crushing it. But then the other part of me was like, yeah, but shit, this is all really uncomfortable to sit through. (laughs) But in a way, I would rather watch something like this than just a straight, true to life, almost biographical movie. Like, uh, what was the name of that recent film with Adam Driver and um, Scarlett marriage Johansson? Yeah, yeah, Marriage Story, or even Kramer versus Kramer. I'm honestly not at all interested in a grounded divorce movie. I would much rather watch a movie like Possession, which I think is as uncomfortable and the tension and the heartbreak and the violence between this couple does have something that does feel true to experience because it's coming from the director's own experience. So in a way, there are pieces of this movie that are grounded in real experience And it comes from a real experience to create a monster like this. Uh, But yeah, I would rather watch a movie like this than a totally realistic story about divorce. Yeah. And this movie feels very theatrical to me in the sense of it feels like Sam Neill and what's the lady's name? Isabel Angiani or Mark and Anna are their names in the movie. But it feels like Sam Neill and Isabel Angiani like... I hope I'm saying her name correctly. (laughs) Well, if you're not, then I'm not. So I hope you are too. (laughs) Uh, It feels like they probably spent months rehearsing this movie. And so everything, like this movie feels like it's performed for people on a stage in the upper rows, but the camera is really close to what's going on, which makes the performances really good but the emotions super uncomfortable. And so it it does feel like kind of one of those things where, you know, you hear about those experimental New York plays where you move through different rooms and you're watching people interact the play, but in different parts of the house as you go by, like one of those avant-garde performance pieces, it does kind of feel like that. Oh yeah. Um, But again, I, as we go through, I can I can shine. I feel like this could be a challenge, right? Because this movie is very hard to recap. I feel like this could be a challenge where anytime you have a question about the movie, 
shoot it at me and I'll try to respond from the movie's point of view as a film. Oh, you think you can you think you can explain this movie? Because there are so many possession explained posts <laughs> online. That's one of the things if you look up possession, Google suggests possession explained. Oh, it's I bet. one of those movies. Oh, I bet. But the the thing that I really like about this movie is that as a filmmaker who likes a lot of different genres, this mm, film as like, a filmmaker as a filmmaker, you, you don't say you're since only allowed you're only allowed to say it like that. Since we're talking about films, uh, <laughs> um, like it's 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 like putting on those glasses where you know different jewel jewelers have those different glasses that gives them different focuses right. and they tinker with them. That's what this movie feels like. You have to watch every single scene from a completely shifting perspective, and you have to constantly be catching up with the movie. Now, I do 100% agree that one of the things I find frustrating in movies is when they go out of their way to be frustratingly ambiguous. And the first half of this movie... But that's what this movie promises. This movie never sold me a bill of goods that it was going to explain everything. You know, that you, I I only get mad at movies when they seem like they're going to give you the answers and then they pull it back at the last minute. If you are right from the get, just, you know, you establish that you're not going to walk away from this movie with straight answers... I, as an audience member, can appreciate that. I agree. The movie does say, listen, we're going to set up for you right away what kind of movie you're getting. And yes, you are not going to get all the neat, tidy answers you want. However, that experience is still frustrating. (laughs) Where you're like, just give me a hint of what is... Like, just stop dragging out this... Thing even longer why are you guys acting like this and then over the course of the movie you get to see why and you get to feel why i think that's why the movie works is because we're not so much interested in seeing why they're breaking up because that's cosmic horror the more you show the less impactful it is but we actually get to feel why they're breaking up and that sucks Oh yeah, no. Well, they they go absolutely Looney Tunes in this movie. Well, <laughs> like let, Daffy let, Duck level. <laughs> let Let's get into it. So, the first again, courtesy of Wikipedia, the first sentence though is "Mark is a spy," which is not something that the movie makes clear at all. But he, you know what? This movie, the but he ha- is a spy. But halfway to three quarters into this movie, I was thinking this is a goddamn brilliant spy movie without them ever mentioning politics. All you need is him They're having in a West Berlin, job. and the wall yeah. is all over the movie. This movie does have some like there. It's not directly about politics, but this is 1981, and for people who don't know, in 1981. Berlin was separated between West Germany and East Germany, East Germany being the communist side, and the characters do live in West Germany. They never mention the fact that they're in West Germany, but they are, and and the movie starts out with Mark, Sam Neill, having this interview with this table of people talking about how he wants to pull out and he wants his successor to replace him. It's all very vague, but there's a man at the table with an eye patch, which I guess is your first clue that this is some kind of spy organization. Right. 
Um, and then I did notice I guess it helped that I had seen this movie before. So I had an eye for details. One of the last things they say to Mark is how is our subject with the pink socks or do they still prefer pink socks? And it seems like a weird comment that doesn't mean anything, but I will mention it again later because it actually weirdly enough does come into play. You are rewarded for remembering this detail. Um, so he's Mark has just returned from a mission, and right from the get-go, Anna Isabel Andiani meets him outside their apartment and says, "We're getting a divorce." Like that's how the movie begins. No explanation, nothing. It's like he comes home, divorce. Oh, oh, ready? What <laughs> you you could say the movie starts on Medias Reis. yes it does it absolutely does there's your tie oh oh Oh. i forgot that that's the (laughs) hotel slogan in the broken hearts gallery oh my god we're just seeing we're we're making we're drawing the connections necromancer magic at its finest (laughs) we are drawing those connections um so anna's really shady won't say why she insists that it is not someone else uh and mark he at first he seems like he's sad about it but he hasn't gone full sam neil mouth of madness crazy yet uh and he hands over the apartment and their son bob uh over to her uh and then he goes on i think it's either a three day or three weeks i i forget what oh, right they three said. weeks yeah oh it was three weeks I he goes so, yeah on a three week drinking spree where he just lies yeah. in a fetal position on a bed and cries um, that was some well, grade A breaking down from Sam Neill. There's a lot that this movie does. <laughs> and I think that the meta There's a lot aspect, going on. Right. There, the meta aspect of having watched In the Mouths of Madness first helped with the HP Lovecraftian sense because right away I was not thinking of these characters as human beings that you might meet out in the world. I was thinking of them as, I mean, since Free Guy has just come out with Ryan Reynolds, I was essentially thinking of them as NPCs in a game or book that, like, are slowly maybe starting to become self-aware. Well, you can make an argument that this movie is really from Bob's perspective and him imagining the reason for his parents' breakdown. From the end of the movie, totally, 100%. But... So anytime characters did stuff or acted a certain way, I saw it more as like that was their character, right? This is Cold War. These are these, this is a family playing a family. This isn't an actual family. This is like Black Widow, only a lot less fun and a lot more serious. Yeah, it does kind of have that feel to it. Like they were assigned to be a family or something like that. Right. And so when it starts off, She is not the bad guy because she has fallen in love with someone else through chance, right? Like she she's playing her part at home, but she's also a human being who's living her life outside of this. So all we see is her point of view, which is 
This guy is not home. He goes, he has a drinking problem. The very first thing he hears when he hears his wife is having an affair is, was the guy better at sex than me? Like, oh, yeah, I forgot you did mention that. That is his very first line of questioning. And for most of the movie, that is what he holds on to until he has this change of character that... Um, I don't is- know. I think he still stays bitter about it until pretty much the very end to where, you know, his worst possible nightmare scenario Bitter, yes but happened. not as male testosterone testosterone about it he plays it as more of a zen like i'll use this as a smart tool to get you back somehow kind of thing but i don't know i mean he's almost like he almost i don't know this movie this movie's got a lot of layers but anyways after his three-week bender he gets back to the apartment finds bob completely alone and neglected I think we're meant to assume that Bob was in that apartment by himself for three weeks because mom, Anna, wasn't there either. Um, and yeah. I don't know Anna the timeline, re- but yes. This movie actually, I don't think this movie is chronological. I don't think yeah. that this movie makes a big deal about being no. non-chronological. Like it, it's more like if you're clever and you're looking, you can see it. Like I think particularly in the state of Anna's undress or when she's particularly unkempt. Um, I mean, she might as well be visiting the tunnel every day for all we know. Um, right. but-, but, but yeah, essentially he's neglecting his son by doing all of this work and also being a terrible father. But then we learned that she is pretty much also neglecting her son to be with mm-hmm. the, the cult leader guy with Heinrich Heinrich. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so he decides that he's going to stay. And of course it's extremely dramatic when she returns and he's in the rocking chair, rocking back and forth. And then he announces he's going to stay. So she has to leave. Um, and then uh, he goes looking for answers. He finds this postcard. He finds out about Heinrich, uh, Anna's lover. Heinrich calls saying that Anna's with him. Uh, the next day, Mark goes to Bob's kindergarten and he meets Bob's teacher, Helen, who is identical to Anna. But again, the movie is nicely staged where you always see Anna wearing a dark blue dress, which matches her eyes, which are blue. Again, Isabel is an incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, and Helen, by contrast, has green eyes light hair and she always wears white almost as if she were an ideal woman an angel in comparison to anna's devil and ooh guys she is devilish um so mark is like is this a joke but helen's like don't be silly yeah uh (laughs) this is definitely where like the giallo lens helps the silliness of the movie have a little bit more of like a like sustenance because it's a little on the nose and it's a little silly but yeah again this movie is not reality so 
But I actually think, you know, I mean, it definitely comes into play more later, but another movie, not just Hellraiser, that I think might owe something to Possession might be a little movie called It Follows. Oh, yeah. There is this sense of Helen almost being a creature impersonating a person or impersonating an idealized version of Anna. Right. Um, It's more about what his, it's more, yeah, about his projection of what a perfect woman is, which is it looks the same exact thing as his wife and it takes care of his son. But she's nice. Right. And she smiles at him and touches him and calls him nice. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the very uncomfortable breakup fights resume after Mark visits and fights Heinrich, who turns out to be this, like, cosmopolitan, like, European Lothario. <laughs> I liked his whole unbuttoned shirt and yeah. his mom casually hanging out. And Sam Neill saying, and your mom was here <laughs> while you were having sex with my wife. And Heinrich's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, where else is she going to go? But yeah, like immediately he's like disarming Sam Neill. He's very feminine, very gentle with him. But he then is when kind Sam of femme, yeah. Even though Sam he drives gets... a motor or rides a motorcycle, Heinrich right. does have some femme energy. But I, I don't know, I kind of liked him. But then, yeah, then when Sam Neill tries to be the the caveman and say, I'm going to win her over with strength, Heinrich busts out his Tai Chi kind of, you know, uh, Aikido type moves where he's like, oh, oh yeah, Hein Heinrich wipes the floor. Heinrich practically wipes the floor with Mark. And yeah. uh, he basically just just like, all right, get out. Uh, and then Mark goes home and in an incredibly uncomfortable scene, slaps Anna around uh, and she flees. And then she returns the next day. He knows that she's been with him but a, is, is this when he realizes it's a different him from Heinrich or no yes because she says I was over at Heinrich's and he says no you weren't because I was mm, that's right that's yeah. right so now he knows she's got a different man not him not Heinrich that is in her life and ooh, this man's got a hold on her um, and I think she even says that she's been with him, the not Heinrich mystery man. This movie does have an, have a mystery element to it that I think drives the plot that I think like more than the supernatural Lovecraftian stuff from just a thriller angle, you want to get to the bottom of who this other new guy is. Uh, recently I read and I watched the adaptations of, uh, the end of the affair and it has that same kind of element where it's both the lover and the husband are trying to find out who the wife's new guy is. And spoiler alert, in the end of the affair, her guy's actually God. She has a religious experience. And so this movie kind of does an end of the affair thing, but yeah. mm, I don't know if it's God <laughs> this time. Um, but now Anna, well grinding meat like what a weird thing to have these characters be doing while they're having this absolutely vicious domestic argument she's just taking 
chunks of meat that she's cut with an electric knife and putting them into a meat grinder while she screams at Sam Neill and he screams back at her. It's a, and, it's a very sexual performance in the cinematography. Wait, that was sexual for you? Yeah. It, when it they was, fought and ground meat at the same time. Yeah, because it's supposed to be unpleasant, but it's supposed to be these characters sharing intimate feelings close together. And I don't think the camera placement and position of the meat grinder and stuff and the... the the. I think she wanted like, him in that meat grinder. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but yeah, it just... I, like, yeah, I get you. This movie is... um. It, again, it felt like characters were doing stuff without knowing why they were doing it. Like their actions sometimes aligned with their words in this cosmic sense of like, because it, you don't know if they're chopping meat because they're talking about like all these grindy, mushy, raw feelings or vice versa. But it's a very European it's a very european style of filmmaking that's for sure. oh it a hundred percent is so anna just gets so over mark just shouting at her and asking her all these questions that she literally puts the electric knife up to her neck and cuts herself yeah and then later mark goes back to grind more meat and then he starts cutting his arm and then he lets her see him like that like to see like look what you made me do even though he never says that here i think i have a different interpretation on it which is she brings the knife to her neck and then he says i'm gonna take care of you i'm gonna make it all he does bandage her up that is fair her face and what she's going through in that moment, it's clear that, again, because we know that the teacher basically looks like her, is a doppelganger of her. He's not, there's, if if she's broken to this point, doing whatever he thought it was that's going to fix her obviously isn't going to fix her. They're going to need to take a completely different approach. But he is pushing forward and saying, no, I can do this the way that I know how to do this. And she's crying because she's not being seen as a person. Then when he she cuts feels himself, trapped, right? So she knows like this is not going to work out. Then when he cuts himself, to me that is, and she says it doesn't hurt, does it? And he's like, no. He now realizes that she was just pretending to need his help. That's why when the bandage goes from really sloppy to super sexy, right? Because like that bandage when she shows up and it's like a super sexy turtleneck, it's like of course he sees a wounded her as this sexy lady who he needs to take care of. But she's like, no, that's not what I am. It doesn't, your actions don't hurt me anymore. And he's like, damn, all right, you can run off. And then it, then the movie kind of pivots into her world, right? We get the, the well, we start to get it by the way of the private investigator. So Mark needs to know who the new man in her life is or the new old man, this other mysterious guy. And what happens is the private investigator follows her to this derelict apartment building where she's keeping a second flat. And the apartment building is like right up against the wall, the Berlin Mm -hmm. wall, actually. Um, So there is your uh, big political thing right in the middle of this movie about adultery and family. Uh, And what we discover there 
Uh, and it's, you know, it's played out very much like a horror movie where she's clearly hiding something when the investigator comes into the apartment. She doesn't want, she wants to keep him from getting into the bathroom with whatever way she can. Okay. Tell me, tell me filmmaker. I, again, hoping and knowing where the movie was going helps like watching this movie with the HP Lovecraft thing helps because that whole performance was a little bit of, I told you so it's, you really don't want to go in there. She's winking and nudging, but she's hit this breaking point of like, I'm sure that there's other ways that it can be said in in those explained videos that are better, but I'm sure that there's a feminism aspect to this of like hey here's this woman who's trying to live her life and all these men keep forcing their way into her space physically um but like she's pretty much like hey don't come in here at first and then she goes nuts and she's like okay ha 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 i know how this is gonna end and then she's like all right dude fucking existence ends for you right in there she is a persecuted woman, and I like some of the, um, there's multiple covers or posters for this movie, but one of them is a woman covered in what looks like snakes and tentacles. She looks almost Medusa-like, yeah. but it's a perfect comparison for Anna's character because like Medusa, she is a persecuted woman the origin story of Medusa is actually that she's raped in Athena's temple and then she becomes this snake monster woman as a result and she keeps turning men to stone as a metaphor for her experience so they have to shuffle her away down in the depths of wherever lair and then men just keep coming at her and she has to keep turning them to stone until finally... One man comes along who's able to, you know, slay her by showing her herself. Um, uh, but that yeah. is, you know, exactly <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah. And she is not only is she on her last nerve, she's right. on the very last thread of her last nerve. Right. And it's about to break into just full blown madness. Yeah, and these these two scenes with these two detectives are very, again, sexual in a, a rapey sense of, like, they're forcing their way inside of her physical space, and then when they're... They're being violated as a result. Right. So, yeah, it's, again, very European. I loved it. <laughs> very European, but yeah, the detective, he goes into the bathroom that he wasn't allowed to go into and he sees you know at this point in the movie we don't get a lot we just kind of see that the bathroom's real gooey there's something real gooey and and the sound or foley effects in this movie tell you that there's something dark squishy and gooey in that bathroom but you don't even see the tentacles yet no 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 tell uh and he dies. She stabs him with a broken bottle. Uh, and then uh, the second detective calls up Mark and says, hey, one of our detectives didn't come back. Yeah. Uh, where did he go? And Mark said, well, yeah, you told me that she's keeping this second apartment. You might as well just go check there. At this point, Mark doesn't care because I think 
things are happening with Helen, like Helen's come by at this point and spend some time with him. He feels like he's starting to actually kind of move on a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Or he thinks he is. Um, But then Zimmerman, who turns out was the lover of the first detective, they were boyfriend and boyfriend. Did you catch that? Yeah, because, yes, I caught that after, um, yes. <laughs> it's I say that because it is a huge part of my rom-com remix. Gotcha. Yeah, I heard that in the Cold War, a lot of closeted gay men were spies because they naturally had to keep secrets about themselves. <laughs> That's very sad. It is. Very sad. <laughs> it is. But also makes a lot of sense. Um, so Zimmerman well, goes also, to... It adds this Giallo-esque sense of comedy when he shows up and he's like, dude, this guy who's tracking down your wife is missing. Uh, so you, you don't know us. He's like, we're going to distance ourselves from you instead of him having to distance himself from them. It was a kind of funny play on that. <laughs> He's right, like, uh, like this, leave us alone now. Okay, we'll take care of this. Uh, we don't know you. We don't know you. Yeah, like the case is getting too big <laughs> for them. Right. Uh, but Zimmerman goes over there. Anna's just cleaning up, uh, and Zimmerman sees the tentacle monster, and he actually sees the face of it, where it kind of looks like a big penis with tentacles with two little eyes and a mouth. It honestly, they didn't look that different from the, uh, what's the movie? The Mars movie. Big what? Daddy Mars. Oh. The aliens. The aliens kind of had that weird penis head thing going. What? Are you talking about aliens or ghosts of Mars? Ghosts of Mars. I mean, they oh, didn't right. have the, the tentacles. Species. The, I, they I weren't you. really thought... lizards, but but I don't know. I guess it looks more like a newt or a salamander, maybe. But yeah. um, but yeah, I think that the the tentacle monster at this point looks real messed up. Um, but then Anna kills Zimmerman by bashing him with her mop bucket, basically, before shooting him with his own gun. Uh, and then, oh, my favorite line from this scene was when she says, he's exhausted from loving me all night or something like that. Right. Uh, Yeah. So she's just, I mean, if there's one thing that you should get from this, it's that Anna is incredibly satisfied by her relationship with mystery man slash Lovecraftian monster, whatever is going down, it is awesome. That, that strange love is doing things for her that Mark couldn't even dream of. I almost And I think that's his worst. Maybe that's his worst nightmare. Like the fact that she is so sexually satisfied with the monster is part of his nightmare. I also think a little bit of it is kind of like a psychic connection where this alien creature is invading her thoughts and mind to connect on an entirely different level. And 
So my my inner headcanon is sort of when she kills those two guys that the creature is kind of like linking with them too because there's a moment where they like look in shock and they have this weird thing that happens yeah, the creature to them before seems they to die. gasp at the same time that Zimmerman gasps at it. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like a it is like a Hellraiser. The the easiest way to describe it is just the pleasure pleasure or pain cinnabite aspect of like this this creature wants to feel this weird side of love from both sides, I guess you could say, but you know, what was Hellraiser's equivalent to Anna? Was it Julia? Is that the villainess's name? Uh, I think Julia. Yeah. Julia or Julia, but I think it. Uh, right now there's just something <laughs> so satisfying about these kind of female roles. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk about strong female characters who essentially just stand in for male roles and there's a place for that but for me this is a strong female character because it's ugly it's complex it's gritty she screams like a banshee and has the face of an angel it's just like (laughs) "Mm, what a meaty role and and she just took it in her hands and swallowed it whole yeah this is coming up to the scene where she has the freak out in oh the, the tunnel. tunnel scene so yeah. when i was watching this movie unfortunately i wasn't able to do what i normally do which is turn on subtitles so i can understand the things that they're saying that like are hard to hear so i didn't realize that she was recounting to mark a miscarriage but that's what it's saying to me courtesy of wikipedia so she tells mark uh, that she has this violent miscarriage on the subway while he was gone and that it resulted in a nervous breakdown. Uh, and then we see Anna going through the tunnel and I didn't know this was a miscarriage, but she goes through the tunnel. She smashes her bag of groceries on the wall. There was a homeless man in the tunnel, but you see when it pans back to his little homeless man home, it's all boarded up. Like he's like, I don't even have, I don't, I can't handle this right now. I'm too old for this shit. Um, But she has a complete breakdown and then writhes on the ground as multiple colored goos seem to come out of every orifice. So, Yes. Yeah, so she's talking about before this, her and Sam Neill. Sam Neill is is now the good guy of the movie, so to speak. This oh, movie, no, he's not a good guy. He's a bad. He's a very bad guy. OK, but in this movie, again, there's shifting sides and points of views. And to me, this movie feels like, you know, how when you play tennis, uh, you you sh- you shift sides. I mean, in basketball and hockey and all that other stuff too. Yes, but this movie is constantly shifting sides. And in this moment, he's playing the level-headed, reasonable one who's saying our relationship is now over. Like I, in in my mind, in this moment, he's playing the one who's like, I think it's time to move on. And then she sees. She she recounts this thing that happened to him, which is essentially she's having an affair with a being from another world or dimension or universe or something. 
And or then, did she conjure this thing into being out of her desires, her unmet could desires? Could be. But then, I mean, again, I, this is my first time watching it, and I and I just watched a lighthearted rom com after this. But like, <laughs> she she goes, she's basically told what to do, and that is, she's told to go seek God, and then like that is me watching the movie as someone who is not. Oh well, something comes thinking. to her. I don't know if it's God, but she she goes looking for God, and she finds something. She because right because it cuts from whatever to god's face and then we get that view from hot the high angle view as she's looking up at god and she's like it feels like she wants to scream but all she can do is like get out these muffled whimpers and to me that's like her screaming where are you god and god it's a doesn't nutty hear performance her. i mean it's she so just gives good. it everything <laughs> it's I, so good like you you can't give enough credit to the to anna to isabel angiani like she gave everything to this role like i wouldn't be surprised if she needed therapy after this oh yeah uh but then after that church scene is when she goes into the tunnel and she has a complete psychotic meltdown and then it comes oh that's right then it cuts back to her talking to Sam Neill, and she says, that day I had a miscarriage of faith, and Chance had to oh. nurture her. And then Sam Neill says, wow, this is the most ugly and vulgar I've ever seen you, which to me in that moment is a compliment from a weird, twisted perspective that, don't get me wrong, Sam Neill then uses that to hurt her by sending Heinrich after her. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I do oh, agree. God. Sam Neill Sam Neil is a good guy for parts of this movie, but it's very small parts, and it's for very small points of time, and he always fucks it up because he is a he's also a crazy person who is a very yeah i would concede that he plays neutral at times and this is one of the moments where he's neutral and he is very importantly even though he is the most intense and scary and violent like the restaurant scene where he's throwing chairs around is terrifying he's an absolute monster um whereas the monster actually doesn't hurt anyone um really during the movie he kind of is just out for himself um it's all all anna and mark committing the violence um but yeah it does seem like someone like anna or like she seems like to me almost the feminine answer to elaine delon where it's like here's an actor here's a person where their beauty is a barrier a mask something that prevents them from being understood. So to have their inner ugliness be seen and seen with clarity is almost a kind of compliment. Yeah, that's very well said. So so now, you like you were saying, Mark does sick Heinrich on her, and we get the third man to persecute Anna and invade her space. And oh, he gets again, real rapey about it, too. He does. But again, just super, super quick, 
it, talking about home field advantage and switching sides, the the house is is Anna and Mark switching sides. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. when you play play at home field, you got the house play is a way station, whatever. But when when Mark goes to Heinrich's house, Heinrich has home field advantage. Now that Heinrich is coming to Mark's house, Heinrich is absolute batshit whacked out on drugs, completely insane. And oh, Mark that's right. He does come. Oh God, he does come to Mark's place while he's totally effed up on drugs. Or I thought he might might have just been drunk. But we later it's learn something. isn't he like super into heroin or something? Heroin he, or mushrooms or dusters? I, yeah, it's. Something. It also looked like Anna was on drugs in that film that he sent to Mark. Yeah, that was a very interesting scene. Yeah, but, that that didn't make sense when she basically abused a, a ballerina child to get her to get into right. position. What she's saying is life is rough out there and you're going to have to put yourself through a bunch of shit to make others happy. And I wish someone taught me that. And it's supposed to kind of be an uplifting moment, but we're seeing it from this guy's twisted cultish found footage he's point turned, of view. He's turned on by her cruelty in a right. way yeah it's a uh, fucked it, up movie yeah it's a totally fucked up movie and uh heinrich gets real rapey with anna but she kind of pretends to be into it because there's really nothing that she can do at this point right. uh and then he's shocked to discover the creature as well as this collection of dismembered body parts in the freezer you know, if you were wondering how this psychological tale of divorce was going to be a horror movie, here's your horror right here. Uh, and she attacks him. She she does this really seductive, stabby thing, though, where she kind of flicks at him and gives him, you know, kind of death by a thousand cuts before she really jams the knife in. Like he at first oh, yeah, yeah, almost yeah. acts like this is just foreplay. And then she's like, yeah. no, it ain't. Uh, so then Heinrich runs to the telephone booth to call Mark and begs him to pick it up. Uh, Mark goes by the apartment. He finds the body parts, but the creature's gone. And then Mark sets up so that the, at this point, I think less than him being concerned about the affair, he realizes that Anna's into some shit and he's got to get rid of the evidence because now he, you know, he's turned on his spy mark hat and he stopped thinking about the divorce and is just like, let's cover up these bodies. Like to him, the fact that Anna has killed people doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Yeah, the movie is 100% definitely not in reality now. So the fact that he's covering up her mess is definitely him trying to now again use this as leverage to say the safest spot is in my arms i have changed but i don't know but he hasn't changed at all he's just (laughs) doing he's just doing mark stuff so he he sets he sets it up so that the hotel or sorry the room 
Like he can, he can bury the evidence. He then has to get rid of the only witness that we know about, which is Heinrich. So he goes to where Heinrich is hiding at a bar. He murders him in the bathroom and stages it like an accidental death, kind of like he does this all the time. So this is kind of, in addition to the first scene, we're starting to get more visual shows of what kind of person Mark is and why he is so, you know, crazy when it comes to this relationship. Like, this is a guy who kills people for a living. Yeah, uh, it felt very and, uh, Michael Clayton, where he was, like, oh yeah. completely oh, yeah. unfazed. And he's like, okay, I gotta take off the shoes. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. But, yeah, this, this yeah. felt like it, it came from someone who lived through a Cold War espionage period where people could just legitimately disappear and it would be more dangerous to ask why than to to know why. Yeah. Right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, then after he murders him, he flees on Heinrich's motorcycle. He blows up the apartment. I liked the whole thing when he blew up the apartment and the lady <laughs> on the street cheered with him. Yeah. That was a nice shot. Tear down the establishment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then he goes home and he finds Anna's friend Margie basically bleeding to death in the elevator. And we haven't talked about Margie at all, but this is such a weird character. Because at first she's just a voice on the phone being like, I don't know where she is, Mark. And then she shows up to take care of Bob, the kid, and she's kind of flirting with Mark. And it seems like she like has the hots for him. But he directly states to her, I hate you, Margie. Right. It's definitely, again, this movie is from different perspectives at any given time. And Margie's character is someone who, at first, she's the gatekeeper to access his wife. And then she's also this nurturing character who's kind of replacing his wife and taking care of the kid while they're off doing crazy But she's also vulgar to him in some way. But she also kind of takes care of him, right? The way she undresses him is the same way that other people undress men. All the men get undressed the same way in the movie, um, which makes it I extra even think creepy when that. he does it to his wife. Like he undresses her like, like the women undress men in this movie. And it's super creepy. But, um, but yeah, at this point now that character has become unnecessary for him. So instead of just like telling her to go fuck off or anything because this is a psychological thriller about a tentacle monster thing it like she dies you know once she serves no more purpose in the movie she dies and then her death almost means nothing like it's so it has no effect on the story whatsoever it's just another body count but it does actually have an effect on the story because you know he's just killed heinrich and then when he brings up the body and finds anna she says she was taking you away from me so it's implied that anna is the one who slew margie and then Mark and Anna have sex in the kitchen. So it's kind of like this fantasy of renewal. Like I killed someone for you. You killed someone for me. And now I'm going to be big, tough spy man and cover up the mess because I'm the only one who can save you. Like you're saying. 
yeah, I, I think that's that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And but then, you know, it seems like everything's hunky dory, but I think it goes over to Margie's apartment. Is that right? I can't remember the specific sequence of events. But now. he goes somewhere and he sees Anna having sex with the creature. This is our first full view of the creature, oh, right. not right, right, in right. shadow. And we see that it's part man, part tentacle monster. And oh boy, she is just loving it. She is getting the best lay she's ever had in her entire life. She keeps saying almost. I don't know if that means that she's on the verge of a climax or or what it's meant to mean, but she looks directly into Mark's eyes. I mean, you know, it's a very, very... Um, I think I'm not going to kink it. shame anybody. I'm sure the scene was incredibly spicy for some people. Mm -hmm. uh, so then Heinrich's mother calls up Mark asking where Heinrich is. He's like, hey, he died. And then she commits suicide by poisoning herself. And it is it, it seems like Mark as some kind of almost angel of death. He stays with her as she passes. It's very creepy. Yeah, they keep talking um, so then, about the fact that her son died without his soul and that she wants to die with her soul. And so there is some like there's definitely the religious undertone or I don't know if it's an undertone at that point. But yeah. But it's weird for him to be the person who is with her at her death. Like he almost replaces her son in staying with her as she dies, which is right. Just, like she bears witness to her death like it's important that someone be there to see that like no higher dimensional universe monsters got my soul right, you, right me and jesus in this room so then the next day we have a sudden and unexpected renewal of the spy plot when what in the fucking soundtrack that drops that score okay that you liked in. that that didn't oh. make sense to me oh. at all like that i didn't me... understand why we suddenly got the 70s spy music and that i was, was and I thought, to the max the movie took such a left turn to me oh. where i'm like wait is this a spy movie? You know that scene this... in, in... And they in were Broken on Heart. a bridge. It was yeah. a bridge of spies. It was uh, a bridge of spies. <laughs> you know that scene in, in Broken Heart Gallery where she uh, she says, hey, let's go sing that song. And he's like, no, I got to take some shots first. And he, he's like, no, I'm sober. She's like, that's why I ordered some shots, baby. That soundtrack was the waitress coming up with those shots. It was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Give me some giallo Italian spy horde crazy concentrated all into one super vague monologue yes but it. yeah th this guy goes up to mark and is like hey we're not happy with your successor why don't you get back in the game and mark says no uh and he returns to margie's apartment to find it uh, surrounded by police and his former employers he's now trying to run away from them and he stages a distraction. <laughs> the cabbie. Uh, the cabbie is an NPC. It totally felt like Free Guy. It was like, hey, go crash I still your car. need to see. Okay. I still need to see Free Guy. I, I, I hear it's a very it good either, movie, but... though. 
Yeah. Uh, but he gets wounded in the shootout. He flees on a motorbike and then ends up in, t- in this just terrible accident. He runs into this building where suddenly it's Anna who's pursuing him. I don't know how Anna suddenly appeared. Yeah, I'd have like, to go back. I think I think they they had a, a if my I think my interpretation of this moment was that now it's it's now or never, and that they had to meet up so that they could leave the country. Almost like you know, if you're spies, you've got to like, okay, it's go time now or never. Here's let's put the plan in action. They were in the process of escaping together, except she turns on him. And reveals that she's working with the spy group to have the creature take over his body or his position or whatever. The Oh, you think that's really her game here? Or because she's with him, right? She's with the bad guy. She's with bad Neil. I mean, she is with the bad guys, but then they also shoot her. But so Anna comes up to the dying Mark and reveals that the creature has transformed into Mark's doppelganger, except he has different eyes and he's kind of smarmy. Uh, like, you know, the creature knows, like, he kind of looks like a guy who's like, I'm really great at sex and everyone knows it. Sam Neill, like that, man. That's, but that's also his vibe later when he encounters that lady. It's like, you want to do what I ask you to because I'm hot. Um, and so Mark wants to shoot them, but then he and Anna are gunned down. Uh, Anna they're lies on top of- They're betrayed by the CIA or whatever. Yeah, they're, yeah. Both, they're both betrayed by, I don't know what the West German version of the Stasi is, but that- mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Anna then commits suicide by using Mark's gun to shoot herself and they, she dies in his arms, but then Mark still somehow jumps to his death and, you know, dies on the ground. And it's here we see that the man who was talking to him about getting back into the spy game is the man with pink socks. I don't know what it means. It's mentioned in the beginning of the movie. It's visually remarked upon at the end. Filmmaker hat, Brett, what does it mean? I don't know. Because when I saw that they went out of their way to show that he was wearing those pink socks, I was I, I did not hear that line earlier in the movie, or there was so much that happened between then and now. I I had no idea what that moment was, but I knew that it had to obviously be something because it was a completely on purpose thing to do to like, they went out of their way to show you his, the color of his socks. Right. And when he's being interviewed in the beginning, they mention their subject and his favoritism of pink socks. And I don't know. I I have no idea what it means. I think it's kind of like MacGuffin-y sort of general spy stuff. Like, hey, you got to bring this guy in. Or is he bringing you in? Ooh. Uh, so then the doppelganger escapes and interesting detail, the woman who helps him escape is also wearing a high heel type cast, just like Margie. It's a different woman. It's not Margie, but it's almost like in addition to Helen and Mark's doppelganger, 
they have to have a third in this twisted, you know, relationship, this toxic marriage. They need yeah. to have their witness. And so, of course, reliably, the woman with the leg cast appears and he escapes. And we end the movie at Helen's flat, which is just gorgeous. Uh, Bob is there and the doorbell rings and Bob over and over again says, don't open the door, don't answer the door. But Helen's like, but what if I want to? Uh, she's very sassy about it. Uh, and we see from the outside that it's Mark's doppelganger and he's doing these very weird, sensual body movements. Like he's stroking the door. Like he knows his idealized mate you know the person who understands him is beyond this door uh but poor bob this is just the most bleak thing like i think that this might be worse than what happens in the lobster to uh the brother bob goes upstairs and trigger warning Skip this if it's going to be very, very uncomfortable for you. This little boy drowns himself in the bathtub because he would rather die than experience the torment of watching his parents separate again. And as he does this, we hear air raid sirens and bombs going off as if the union of these two creatures that were never meant to be born starts world war three yeah it definitely felt very much like yeah the what they often say is one of the safest places you can be during a tornado or an air raid is in the tub so it def that felt to me like yeah they're going more for the metaphorical approach of i don't know if the kid made a conscious decision to go drown himself in the pool but as the parents become closer to reuniting the place that is supposed to be the safest for him is not the safest. Uh, it's like, yeah, it, you, it's bleak. It's bleak as fuck. Oh, it's so incredibly bleak. Oh my God. Um, I know we we're, we're letting ourselves go a little longer than usual. Uh, any, any thoughts, scenes, things you want to top off on? I don't think so. I just, yeah, it was a, I thought it was a fantastic movie, but I also, it, it was like under the skin or, you know, it was like one of those movies where, oof, yeah, it's not for everybody. Um, but I liked it. Some movies bring people together. This is a movie where you go in and out distinctly as an individual. Yeah. So, gotta ask the question, who'd you have a crush on? Oh, man. I didn't even think about it. I I mean, I guess I just have to go with uh, Isabel Adjiani. Anna or Helen? Oh, Anna. Get Helen out of here. <laughs> oh, you don't have any patience for idealized good girls? No. No, you rather have so that girl who gets down in the subway tunnel and has right. fluids come out of every orifice. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, I thought her performance was incredibly intimate and sensual and sexual and vulnerable. Disturbing. It it ugly, really was Medusa like. Yeah. It, and yeah, the, the reference to the lady from uh Carnival of Souls is very good, very spot on. But also, I don't know much about this movie, but I saw somewhere, I think it was on IMDb or something, where she basically talked about this movie saying, this is the kind only this is the kind of movie you can only do when you're younger. And I saw that quote before I saw the movie, but ha- having now watched that movie, going on to IMDb and re-seeing that quote, I can say, yeah, this looks like an absolute, like you said, she probably needed therapy or, or something after this movie. Yeah, this is the kind of performance that takes a spiritual toll on a person and you need a lifetime to recover from. Yeah, she goes into the abyss, man, big time. Oh, man. I loved it. I'm looking through her 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 filmography right now. I don't think I've seen anything else that she's been in. So she was in a very famous. She was in a very famous period movie called Queen Margot, where she was Queen Margot. Uh, but I have not seen it yet. It's one of these movies that I'd really want to watch, but I, I haven't uh, taken the time to. But I just think that, gosh, she's just, I mean, an amazing actress and one of the most beautiful women in the world. And you'd think that my crush would be her having said that, but I got to give it up to the monster. Yeah. I love his development. I love that he is just always down to lay there and submit to a night of passion. You know, (laughs) he gets tired from all that passion, but he seems to be always game to go. So give it up for the monster. He keeps the lady satisfied. Yeah. Hey, monsters and humans. We're finding more and more about these two movies. Strange the monster love. needs the person, and the person needs the monster. Oh, that is a good connection. People need monsters, and monsters need people. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, how was it to make a rom-com based off this movie? Okay. Uh, I thought it was very fun, but also I feel like I've got to talk fast and loose because... One, we have gone over in talking about this movie than we usually do, but it's a very good movie that can't be summed up very quickly. You can cut out the the chit-chat in the beginning if we need to. No, I don't think we do. Um, but I had a blast. However, this I'm, I'm kind of just going to pitch you a trailer and then okay. the third act. So here we go. We open up with a couple in love, right? Like a silent movie. It's very cutesy. It's all shenanigans. And it's just very lighthearted. Then we get into their wedding and there's some wedding antics. We're like, oh, you know, you can't see the bride before the wedding. So they've got to like run around and solve some kind of wedding antic stuff. But then just like in uh, Beetlejuice, these people die. And it's funny. They die in a funny way, like a dog or whatever on a bridge. And, and they almost fall off and then they do. But then they die and they come back from death both having seen a different H.P. Lovecraftian type creature. So now they know that even though they're religious and they just got married, they're starting to question their reality and they're starting to think, should we be together? Like, if is that what God wants? Because what if there really is no God? Because we just saw two of them over here and I don't know. 
So now they have to go on an adventure and they have to sort of do it together at first until they realize they can only resurrect one of their two gods. So now they're starting to split apart because she wants to resurrect one and he wants to resurrect the other. So now they're starting to see things differently and maybe they aren't meant to be together. Maybe this whole marriage thing isn't working out. So they go around and they have to collect a chant or whatever, a book. And then in a big dramatic moment, however it happens, they both say the chat at the same time, the chant at the same time. But because of antics, they've got their chants mixed up. So instead of summoning two different HP Lovecraft monsters, they summon one mixed up between the two. So now we have this ultimate HP Lovecraftian monster and he's a very gross, slimy, practical effect creature, but the creature himself is like super charming. And he basically, is he like Paddington? No, (laughs) I would say he's like, there's gotta be a movie where a couple both fall in love with a character in a very infatuated kind of way. Like they both yes. end up falling in love with him. I and feel so, like that happens in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, doesn't he have sex with both of them? I don't know. I've never seen it. <gasps> Gasp. Um, <laughs> and so these these two monsters are summoned as one monster and it's super charming. So these people are like, oh shit, like maybe this can be like the third wheel in our house who's actually super cool. Like they try out this alternative lifestyle where they're having a... a a polygamous relationship with this weird gross tentacle monster but then the monster takes over the world psychically and then the people at home start to see that the monster has changed so now the monster is starting to become arrogant and mark and anna don't like that they liked it oh well that gets you voted off the island in survivor you can't be arrogant better when the monster was just new and cool but now that he's now that the whole world loves him and he's they liked his old stuff no 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 they don't like that so now they have to stop the monster which they do uh the monster has has a statue built in his honor but he also has to like I don't know. We'll figure it out. But essentially, we'll say that a meteor is coming towards Earth. So he has a statue built in his honor and that he's going to leave the planet and that this whole world is going to kind of be like his cult home base that he'll revisit in so many years and it'll be his planet. But as he's leaving, um, he puts Mark in charge of the egg in the statue and tells him like, Hey, once I leave, you got to like take care of the statue because that's how my baby is going to come out. My face hugger monster telepathic crazy HP Lovecraft baby is going to come out and it's going to take over the world. And Mark's like, wait, I thought I was going to keep the world safe for you while you were gone. And he's like, no. So then Mark and Anna have to band back together because at this point, you know, you got to do the great breakup before you do the, the coming back. So they... Anna tricks the monster with Mark's help or vice versa. They get him on the spaceship and then they realize, oh crap, now we have to destroy the statue. And so as they destroy the statue, the monster is blasting off into space. He sees them destroy the statue, but the whole world is obsessed with him because it's all psychically a hive mind type thing, right? So the whole world is like, you destroyed our leader's statue. We're going to destroy you. And the leader is like, you destroyed my baby. Now I got to go back to Earth and put another baby in there. And so as he turns the spaceship around, the meteor hits the bad guy and blows up. And then as 
as the ship explodes into fireworks, the crowd awakens from their haze and they go, who is the statue of this guy? And the main characters are like, uh, who cares? He's dead. And the whole crowd celebrates. Yeah, he's dead. And so then the couple gets to kiss while everyone else celebrates their love among an exploding spaceship of monster guts. It sounds like Possession meets Independence Day meets Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I wrote down Zool and Gozer as my as my replacement god names for the for yeah. HP Lovecraft. So yeah, yeah, I no, I, was... I was getting some major <laughs> Gozer Zool vibes for yeah, sure. Yeah, the key master. I, I like it. I, you know, you you get on my case for including violence often in my rom coms, but I never expected you to keep the tentacle monster element of this movie. It's a little Rick and Morty, I feel, in the sense of like. Yeah, actually, they did do the one. Um, they did do the one episode recently where, where the Cronenberg Jerry. No, the Beth and Jerry always have a, a relationship, as you know. Oh, the where show. the visualization the of how they see each other gets created. No, but that was good. I like that one. But the the Sea King guy, or the the who was Poseidon guy, the Sea King, he shows up and he's he's uh rick's nemesis and they're like this guy's your nemesis but he's in charge of the sea and he offers beth and jerry a threesome and it's it's like a thing and so that kind of feels like that where it's like oh a gross creature comes into your life and is the perfect way to fix your relationship (laughs) yeah no i i definitely think that there is a uh a not often used theme there but yeah we (laughs) We gotta we gotta get this train back to the station. So I'll I'll try to be quick with mine. Uh, what was the title of yours, by the way? I I didn't come up with one again. <laughs> just possession. <laughs> so I, I called mine just the two of us. I don't know. It doesn't really relate to anything except my point of view characters, Zimmerman and Doring are a gay couple living in West Berlin. I kept the time period uh, and the location. They're making their living as private detectives. Zimmerman is happy with the routine. Doring wants more. Maybe Doring wants to move to America and adopt a kid. Like He wants more for their life, and Zimmerman's happy with everything the way that it is, and that's the tension in their relationship. Everything changes, though, when Mark hires the detectives to follow his wife, Anna, who he thinks is having an affair. Seems like it's going to be the standard adultery case. But then the detectives learn that Anna is secretly an East German spy embedded in a honeypot scheme to gather intel from Mark because he's a West German spy. So it's very Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, and then, of course, uh Doring learns from a heart to heart with Anna that she is actually in love uh, with Mark, but cannot reveal that their entire relationship has been built on lies. So now you have a new conflict on top of the existing conflict, which is that Doring wants to bring them together. He's like, oh, we we owe it to them to unite this couple. Uh, And then Zimmerman's like, oh, my God, we got to drop this case way too dangerous like let's not get involved in 
politics between West and East Germany, we could get killed. Uh, they have a big fight. It splits up the couple. Doring goes to Anna to convince her to talk to Mark. Zimmerman runs into Mark at a bar while Mark is drinking away his sorrows. They commiserate. Mark reveals that he knows that Anna is a spy uh, and that he actually loves her too, because of course he does, even though they're for different sides, they're both really sexy people. So why wouldn't they? Uh, And we learn that he really hired the detectives because he suspects that Anna's people are going to turn on her. And it's a great cover story so that anytime they see in Anna interacting with strange men, they can call up Mark and, you know, he's, he's actually doing it to protect her. He's not being a jealous husband. Uh, And now Zimmerman's like, Oh my God. Doring is right. He's right about this. He's right about us. I've got to go find him. I got to go apologize. And of course, Mark's like, I got to go be with Anna. But then as they close in on the apartment, they see Anna and Doring being kidnapped by East Germans who think that Doring is Mark. So for the calm part of the rom-com, I think that you could get some really funny stuff where they're treating Doring like he's Mark, like he's this like um, West German James Bond, when really he's just a bumbling private detective, you know, man who knew too much stuff. Yeah. Uh, And then Zimmerman and Mark, they have to go over the wall and rescue their lovers, guns a-blazing, and basically it ends, you know, after the big fight with the East German government, they get rescued, and they're all given new lives and identities in America so that they can start over and be happy. Aww. Yeah. Gotta go for that happy ending. Gotta go for (laughs) that H-E-A, happily ever after. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. Uh, Yeah. So I think that we learned a lot today about divorce, tentacles, filmmaking. And I just like to wrap that up with saying, please like subscribe rate review follow wherever you listen to podcasts you can also follow us on social media facebook twitter instagram at necromancer pod and email us at necromancer podcast at gmail now let's get into love bites what can you recommend to mend a broken heart this week brett uh i i can't I can't recommend anything to mend a broken heart. Well, that's not but, true. I mean, but just I'm hoping to, you do it. I'm hoping you just, recommend something good. Well, well I'm going to recommend it. I'm going to recommend a TV show. So that that's oh, what I right. meant. What What do you want to recommend this week? I was just trying to be cute about it. Well, I was going to recommend Annette, which is another heavy hitting drama, but with comedic elements. <laughs> but it's also about heartbreak. Um, Annette, yes, tell us more know, about Annette. Uh, I've never seen a Leo's Carex movie. I've never seen Holy Motors. I just know that it's a movie that people like. But uh, yeah, this movie is written 
the music, the script and, and music is written by Sparks. Sparks is a band that Sonia pointed me in the direction of. It's a great band. It's probably the best thing that Sonia shared with me from one fan to another. It's they're they're amazing. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you to see it because probably you either know about it or don't. And if you don't, just listen to some Spark songs before you go in because it is a very specific kind of humor and a very specific kind of storytelling. And it's not one that can be easily conveyed unless you have an hour and a half to talk about it like you do Possession. <laughs> it's a great movie. It is a fantastic movie. Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard crush it another beautiful french woman i know how many of them can there be well i'm glad to know that it's a good movie it's so good yeah but it's also kind of like possession in the sense that watching it at home does require you to treat it like a, a cinematic experience like i had to put my phone away for possession because i I had to give the movie 100% of my attention. Um, Cause if you don't, yeah, it's easy. If I watched a net at home, I might've been tempted to, to look up some phone stuff before the movie actually got some serious momentum, but it's a good movie. Good movie. How about you? What's your, what's your movie or song or anything but a TV show you have to recommend for us this week? I have a TV show to recommend. Oh, great. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> I, I like we're like anything but a tv show and that's exactly what i have to recommend now we haven't gotten to the broken hearts gallery yet but there is a uh, one person in the movie jeff a guy who doesn't talk and he is played by an actor who i recognized from one of my favorite shows a little show a little canadian show called letter kenny Oh. Now, if you are suffering from a breakup, you know, now's the perfect time for you to get into a new show or a new thing and binge watch something while you sit on the couch and cry. And it might as well be Letterkenny. In fact, I think in the first episode, Wayne, one of the main characters, has just been dumped. So mm. you'll have him to commiserate with. But Letterkenny is about a small Canadian town. In fact, I turned on subtitles to watch Letterkenny because I can't understand their Canadian accents. But it. it's a town that's divided between the rednecks, the jocks, the skids, and uh, I think, you know, the church-going people. But it's a little small Canadian town uh, that has all these little groups that interact with each other, sometimes in a friendly way, sometimes in an antagonistic way. And it's also a show that has a lot of interesting wordplay to it. So a lot of characters sitting around and improving and riffing off wordplay in ways that I think are really clever, like I don't know why I think this is so funny, but in the first episode, this guy walks up to a urinal and says, so this is where the dicks hang out. And I just, I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Uh, but good. yeah, it's a really funny show. it was a sketch show. It's not a sketch show. Oh. It's just, uh, it's kind of, I wouldn't call it like a mockumentary. It's not like, uh, you could somewhat compare it to Parks and Recreation, but yeah, it's about a small Canadian town and the groups within it. And right. it's very clever. 
but yeah, great show for you to start watching if you've got a lot of time on your hands. Very nice. Yeah, I've never seen a whole show of it, but any clip I do catch because it's very permeable on the internet. Uh, it's uh, it's funny. It's always funny stuff. All right. Well, that's all for today. So, Brett, how would a Big Daddy Mars handle a breakup text? I'm sure his text would have a lot of speech bubbles. And then you could only imagine the gibberish that he would say, but then it would just be a sad emoji face. Aww. I feel weird ending it on that, even though this episode is overly long. No, that's you end it on a sad note. It's like possession. It's a sad ending. All right, well, then it's a sad ending. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.